TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal legal system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Rudy Valdez is a Michigan-raised, Brooklyn-based filmmaker who makes meaningful documentary films about social, culture, cultural, and political issues. His latest film, The Sentence, is a documentary about mandatory minimums and sentencing reform. He shot it and directed it over the course of a decade. It premiered and won the U.S. Documentary Audience Award at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, and you can see it now on HBO. It tells the story of Rudy's sister, Cindy, who was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison on drug conspiracy charges related to her deceased ex-boyfriend's crimes. It's a really powerful film. As you've heard on this podcast before, contact with the criminal justice system doesn't just affect the person who goes to prison. It affects entire families and networks of support. So we invited Rudy on to discuss the film and the broader reform efforts he hopes to see as a result of this work. Thanks so much, Rudy, for joining us on The Permanent Record. Thank you for having me. So um, tell us about how you got started uh, making this film. Uh, and I mean, you, you dropped everything and, 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 and started uh, advocating for your sister, really, right? What were you doing when you decided, I need to do this thing for my sister? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because it, it was truly an organic start. You know, when, when my sister was sent away, you know, when you look at the... Um, the the write-ups on the film and it says uh it took me a decade to make the film and all these things that's all completely true but in a weird way it'd been um something that i'd been working on uh for a very long time in the sense that growing up i never felt like i had a voice and i felt like i lived in a sort of underserved and underrepresented community and my family was underserved and underrepresented and and i never knew what that meant growing up and um you know you fast forward to you know, me being 20, what, I don't remember, 20 from in my early 20s, mid-20s, and seeing my sister um, sentenced to 15 years for a first-time nonviolent offense, I remember sitting in there and looking around the courtroom and thinking, who's going to do something? You know, it, it felt like a very unjust situation, and I was like, who's going to listen? Like, who's going to speak up for us? And I thought, you know, nobody is. You know, I, I didn't see any help coming, and so I thought, I, I have to fight. And it didn't start off as me wanting to make a documentary. It didn't start off as me even knowing what that meant. But one of the things I knew that I needed to do when my sister went away was I wanted to try and capture moments in the lives of her daughters. Because I thought while I figured out what was happening with their sentence and, and how I could try and correct this, I, I knew I wanted her to be able to watch them grow up. You know, she was going to have pictures and she was going to have phone calls and those things, but I really wanted her to see them live. So it literally just started as me documenting the girls' lives for no other reason and no other audience than my sister when she eventually would come home. Um, and then I was home. This was a few months in. Um, I flew back to Michigan because I was living in New York at the time. And I flew back because her oldest daughter was having her first dance recital. Yeah. And completely organically, um, my sister calls and she says this line to, to her daughter, my oldest niece, that changed everything for me. She said, 
you know what mommy's gonna do while you're at dance? I'm gonna lay down in my bed, I'm gonna close my eyes and I'm gonna think about you. You know, mm -hmm. and, and in that moment, I realized that I had an opportunity to tell a story that you don't normally get to hear. Yeah. You know, when you hear about the, the people who are going away uh, for these 15, 20, 30, 40 life sentences, and in the headlines of, you know, this drug conspiracy has been taken down and, and all these people are going away and it makes you feel really safe because all of these terrible people are being taken off the streets. You never hear about the children left behind, the right. families left behind, the communities left behind. And I wanted to tell that story. Right. And, and that's really, I quit everything. I quit acting, I quit writing, I quit teaching. And I decided to learn how to become a filmmaker to make this film. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, that's, you answered some of my next question just at the very end there. But, but aside from, you know, being Cindy's brother and having that family and seeing this from this perspective that you just described, what are some of the things that put you in a position to, to make such a, a powerful and, and really, frankly, beautiful film? Um, you, you said you just now that you had to learn. What did you already know and, and how did you go about, you know, these are expensive films and this distribution that's happening now with HBO is a big deal. How did, how did you get into a position to do all of this? Uh, you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally, um, the first camera that I shot on for this, I, I shot the first um, sort of frames of this entire film the day after that my, the day after my sister went away. And um, there just happened to be a little high eight handy cam at her house. It was literally her camera. And I picked it up and I just started filming the girls. Um, I don't know if it was instinct. I don't know what it was, but I wanted to capture moments of them. And um, again, then I didn't, it wasn't about be, being a film, but I, I think it was a combination of a couple things that ultimately made me want to do this. You know, during those months of the first few months of my sister being incarcerated, I started to research. I started to Google. I started to, cause, because I literally, when I tell you I literally thought this, I, I literally thought somebody made a mistake, like a clerical error. I thought that somebody forgot to carry a one or something and my sister wasn't supposed to get this sentence. And so I initially set out to say, okay, what did they miss? Like what, what went wrong here that I can be like, look, you guys, um, you clearly didn't see this aspect of, of this during the sentencing and let's, let's fix this. And what I realized almost immediately is not only did they not make a mistake, but it was happening to thousands and thousands of other people. And that, you know, I sort of went into this wormhole of, of, of trying to figure out the history of that and why it was happening. And, and during the course of all of that, I continued to film with the girls and, 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 and film these moments. And it struck me in that moment that my sister called that, you know, I'm just seeing the first layer of these statistics. And you're not, you know, you're not multiplying that statistic by the amount of children and the amount of other people who are affected. And um, so uh, the way I learned was I when I decided this was going to be a documentary, one of the first things I did was I bought filmmaking for dummies, literally. <laughs> the yellow thought, book, the yellow book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was literally like, it has to be in here. Like this is, <laughs> this is going to show me how to do this. And, um, no offense to the people who made that book, but it's not in there. Uh, it, it, um, there's a lot of technical stuff I learned from that, but it wasn't in there. But I, I started as a production assistant. I got a, um, 
a wonderful opportunity to be a PA on other people's films. And I turned that PA position into a eventually a sound mixing position. And I became an editor. And I slowly started working up the ranks uh, over the decade of making this film. And I became a sound mixer and a producer and eventually an additional camera operator and eventually a cinematographer. And I shot films for, you know, Sebastian Younger and uh, Gita Ganbahir and Robert De Niro and Whoopi Goldberg and um, all of these people in order, you know, I, I use them all in a weird way as my film school yeah. to, to learn and to figure out all the different elements of creating a film to make my film. And, and it, in a weird way, it became an obsession because when I started to make this film and I, I spoke to my family about it, especially Cindy, um, you know, I said to them, if you're open and you're honest and you're vulnerable for me and, and, you, and you let me tell your story, I promise you that I will make something good out of all of this. Uh. And, and by making that promise, I, I sort of put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, this, this pressure that was, that only I could really, um, handle in the sense that I needed to be the best filmmaker that I could possibly be because I, and it's something I still struggle with, you know, all the way up until this interview throughout this entire process, I, I wanted to make sure that I was the right person to tell this story, that I was good enough to tell this story, that I was strong enough to tell this story. So the, the, the journey of becoming a filmmaker to make this became an obsession wow. to the point where I would go and work a 12, 14 hour day and I would carry this little digital camera with me or a little notebook and I would take pictures of, of camera setups and, and monitors and where the lights were and I would write down things I didn't understand and I would go home and with my little camera that I had at the time, I would recreate it in my bedroom. I would recreate where lights were to try and figure out why do they have a light here? Why is the camera here? Why is the shutter here? What is an f-stop? What is a shutter speed? Like I didn't know what any of this meant. And so I'd go home and I would just obsessively research and, and, and try and figure out what it all meant. And, I, and the other thing that I would do whenever I had free time was I would try and think of things throughout my childhood and young adulthood, movies and, and, and things that affected me and why it affected me. And I would literally go back and I would look at films and I would, I would take one scene and I would rewind it and play it, rewind it. And play. if anyone were watching me from, you know, <laughs> they would be like, what is wrong with this guy? He's completely nuts. But I, I needed to figure out the elements that were making me connect with things. Yeah. And, and what I immediately found out, I shouldn't say immediately, what I eventually found out and what became my voice and what became the voice of this film was intimacy. You know, the thing that I always connected with in films, whether they were narrative or documentary or anything, were these feelings of, you're not this voyeur looking from outside through this cameraman's lens, but you feel like you're inside this situation or inside this family or inside this, this movement that was going on. And, you know, luckily that was the thing that I had with my film more than anything else was intimacy. Right. I had the this, trust. Is your, this is your family, right? Exactly. And so what, what I immediately realized was what is going to make this strong is that, it's not a cameraman and a producer and a director and all these people coming in and, and telling the story of this family. It's the family telling their story. Yeah. Every time somebody is talking and the camera's in the room, it's not a camera in the room. It's the brother in the room. It's the uncle in the room. <laughs> it's the son in the room. And I wanted to make that clear. You know, that's why there are moments in the film where, you know, like my mom looks right at the camera and she says, I'm going to do your laundry. 
You know, I didn't want to take that out of the film <laughs> yeah. because I, I wanted it to be a reminder of this is who is holding this camera. This is whose lens you're looking at it through. And you are that person. You are this family. And so I took all of these elements and I put them together and I tried to tried to create, you know, a voice, my voice, the voice that I wanted to be um, heard for so long. I, I, I wanted to to put all of those elements into this film. Yeah, well, you you did a remarkable job of of that, and and it may, it's not surprising at all that it took you a decade of of many many hours a day and hard work like you just described to do it, and and the result is this film that that to me has has two things in 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 large quantities in spades, and and one is emotion, and the other is that it is a beautiful film, like your your cinematography and and some of the images and and that that you evoke, especially early in the film, are just pretty right they're just they're great to watch uh and so i guess i have a question about how you balance like that much emotion that much you know beauty or at least your skill in capturing beauty in in sort of seemingly ordinary things how do you balance that with with the need to be able to tell the story right and to not make it just just pretty or to not make it just a, a sob fest which it almost was for me um do, do, you, do you get that question like what how do you how do you still strike a balance when you have so much emotion and, and, and you are talented putting together film? Yeah, you know, it's um, I have received this question a few times in, in different ways. And I think um, one of the things that that I think ended up working for this film and is something that I realized, you know, it, it probably the first time I realized it wasn't until Sundance, to be honest with you, the, the first time it really hit me was one of the big sacrifices that I made by making this film was that I did have to separate from my family in a weird way uh, throughout the process of this. I think that the intimacy and, and the love and the, and the care that is in the film is there because there's no denying that I am their family, that I am their brother and their son and their uncle and all those things. But I, I always use this example of um, the first time I was filming my father and he breaks down crying. And up until that point, I'd only seen my dad cry, I think, two times in my life. And everything in my soul was saying, put down the camera. Yeah. You know, go hug yeah. your dad. Go tell him it's going to be okay. Be a good son. And um, something else started fighting me at the same time. And it said, hold your shot. You know, this is, yeah, this, this is what you promised them. You promised them that they were, if they were open and honest and vulnerable, that you would make something good, turn this into something good. So it became this obsession again of, of separating, creating this barrier and, and taking what was happening on the other side of that lens and trying to make something beautiful from it. Yeah. So I, I, I tried to take all those opportunities, especially those ones that, that still stick with me and haunt me in, in weird ways. And, um, you know, it, it was this constant balance of using the, the natural, the honesty that was happening on, on the other side. You know, in a weird way, I had the easy part in all of this. You know, I, I just had to hold the camera. You know, they were really creating the beauty and creating the honesty on the other end of it. Um, I just had to try and stay in focus and make sure I had enough battery to... <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, I was really, you know, one of the things I think that does um, speak to, uh, you know, I guess the beauty of it um, is something that I that I didn't really think about as 
as an aesthetic choice for beauty, but more an aesthetic choice for intimacy. And it's the fact that I decided to shoot most of this film on a prime lens, wide open, which, you know, for, for people who don't know what that means, it means it creates that really super shallow depth of field that, that sort of, that, that makes you feel like you're, you're right in the middle of everything. And I did that because I challenged myself in the sense of I never wanted to, um, again, have these wide shots and, and super wide shots that made you feel like you were outside of the realm of this family. But I always wanted to be right there in the middle of the family. And I wanted, you know, the way you, you, you look at somebody else in the eye when, when you're talking to them. And if you're focused on them and you're focused on what they're saying, the rest of the world falls away. You know, if you look at the person next to you right now and look them in the eye, you know, the rest of the room falls away. And I wanted to create that in this film when, you know, there's a scene near the end when my sister calls home and there, I, I knew that there were going to be 10, 12 people in the room and that we were going to pass the phone around and she was going to talk to everyone. And what I wanted to happen in that scene was I wanted the rest of the room and the rest of the world to fall away, not to feel like there are all these people on top of each other because the only thing that mattered at that moment was that phone call and the conversation she was having with that person. So I think that adds to the beauty of it, that texture and that intimacy. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what you're describing is exactly what, what I saw. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Cindy's, Cindy's case, Cindy's situation. Um, you describe, or someone in the film describes a door knock and that's how it began. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that she was sentenced to 15 years for a first offense, a nonviolent. And I, I think I recall a drug conspiracy. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. So uh, this door knock comes long after the, the, facts of the case had had you know developed tell us a little bit about how she found herself in this situation yeah so my sister was the was the girlfriend of a drug dealer and one of the things that um i always like to point out and, and i and i try to be as honest as possible about is that you know this film is never has never been about you know cindy's guilt or innocence you know she was guilty she she made a poor choice in um in somebody she chose to, you know, be in a relationship with. And when she was in that relationship, she made poor choices during that time. Um, what end up, what ends up happening is, you know, he ends up being murdered in what the police call a drug deal gone wrong. And when he's murdered, his drug ring is taken down almost immediately. They, they arrest, I think 26 people and, um, they all sort of go away for different, uh, charges and different crimes and all in, in connection with this drug ring and for different amounts of times, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, some people got 40 years. Um, but nobody, and, and I think it was all because people were, you know, giving information on other people because that's the only way to lessen your sentence in a right, federal right. drug case is information. Yeah. And nobody said anything about my sister at that time. You know, she was a very, um, tangential part of this entire thing. She wasn't uh, a big part of this drug ring. She was the girlfriend. Um, so what ends up happening is after all this happens, after her ex is murdered, you know, we as a family encourage her, look, you know, you can, you can let this destroy you or you can try and get your life back together. You can, you can, you can rebound from this. You're given a second chance. And she does that. You know, she meets a new guy. Eventually she gets a job. Um, she's married, she has two kids and she didn't even know it at the time, but she was pregnant with their third when, you know, over five years later, the federal government comes and knocks on the door. 
and they uh, uh, subsequently um, eventually try her and, and convict her of conspiracy. And, you know, conspiracy is, you know, knowledge of, of the crime, not going to the police, but also having, I don't know, proof that she was in some ways um, a participant in it. It didn't matter how big of a, of a participant, but that she had some, some part of what was going on. And ultimately, they sentenced her to 15 years for, for what is a first-time nonviolent offense. Yeah. And her sentence didn't come until nearly six years later. They actually let her go home and have the baby before reporting for sentencing. So her youngest daughter was six weeks old when she went away. Wow. Wow. You've said in other interviews that, you know, what you just described is, you know, part of a system, a, a ju justice system. And you've said the system works exactly as it's designed to work, which is a phrase that I hear quite often in my work, uh, trying to, you know, find some reform in this system, make some reform in this system. What does that mean to you? I, I have obviously ideas about that in the work that I do. But when you say the system works exactly as it's designed to work, the thing you just described that happened to your sister is working exactly as it's meant to. What does that mean? It means that, you know, I, I say that because I oftentimes it, it's easy to say, call something a broken system because that makes it feel like, oh, then we just need to fix it up. And we have these like little patches we need to do in order to make it right. And I don't think that's the case with the criminal justice system. I think that it is, uh, again, not a broken system. It is working exactly how it's designed. And it's to um, put people away in large numbers and ultimately for profit which to me is the grossest part of this entire thing is that, you know, not only are the taxpayers paying, you know, ridiculous amounts of money to incarcerate people, but there are people on the flip side of that profiting in the millions and millions and millions of dollars on that. And I, I say the system is working exactly the way it is designed to work because we need a new system. We don't need to fix this system. We need a new system that isn't about um, punitive sentences and about putting away people for as long as possible for political power or for people and prosecutors and judges to move up the ladder in their careers. Like these are people's lives. These are families. These are communities. And, you know, it's been something that I think has been very easily overlooked for 30 plus years because it is almost exclusively um, not only people of color, but people from lower income communities. And they're the ones who can be overlooked. They're the ones, just how I described my, my life growing up, feeling overlooked, feeling underrepresented and underserved. This is exactly who is being um, swept up in all this. So who is going to listen? Nobody. You know, so it's an, it's an easy game and it's an easy um, system for people to profit off of and, and create careers on. But, you know, we need a new, a new system. Yeah. And, and people can say, oh, so you want everyone just let out of prison? That's and that's the sort of shallow and pedantic response to all of this. But, but what I try to tell them is eventually, yeah, everyone that you see in prison, most of the people that you see for whatever the crime is, it doesn't matter if it's a nonviolent crime or a violent crime, they're going to walk the streets again. And the system that we currently have set up does not make it conducive to them being productive members of society. And that is for all of us. That's taking the victim into account almost last. This is a selfish thing. I don't care what you've been sentenced to prison for. If you're ever going to walk these streets again, uh, the same streets as my three-year-old daughter, 
I want you, your time in prison to have been productive and rehabilitative, not punitive and damaging to everything you're going to need to be productive again. Yeah, and others would say that, you know, that this, these, there are consequences uh, to acts. And, and so accountability and punishment are obviously concerns, and you, you reference those. And, and I think what, what you do is such a great job of illustrating with your family uh, are, are what the punishment, what the costs really are. And these, you know, in, in there are instances uh, where costs should be extracted from someone who, who, you know, harms someone else or is involved in something that damages their community. But uh, what you do a great job of and what you just said is that, you know, the impact is so much more than what, uh, what we think it is when we, when we, you know, stay within the four walls of a courtroom or look at a judgment sheet, you know, that's signed by the lawyers and the judge. Um, and, and so, yes, I, that's a great answer about, you know, the things we need to, to consider as we create a new system and to um and to that you know it's especially difficult for women uh how many times was cindy moved she was moved 3 times um you know and and it just got more and more difficult each time you know the first time that she was uh when she was first taken away i mean part of this entire system as well you know and this is a much longer answer i probably shouldn't even give it to you but you know <laughs> Go ahead. the thing the thing I noticed at the beginning was when she was taken out of that courtroom, we had no idea where she was going. You know, we didn't hear from her. You know, after she went to county jail, she was like, I'm not going to be able to reach out to you until I'm at my prison. We didn't know for a few weeks where she even was. And that's not uncommon, you know, and right? It's not. No, it doesn't seem to be. And, um, you know, all of a sudden she calls and she's like, I'm in Illinois, you know, which at that time was like a six and a half, seven hour drive from where her children are. And that's difficult. You know, that, that costs money to to go and visit and see somebody and, and, and hug them. You know, and, and when you're talking about a six-week-old baby, you know, that that's an eternity, you know, yeah. between visits. And she was there for three years. And she was moved to Florida, which is a 20-some-hour drive, you know, from where her kids are. Or, or it's an expensive plane ride. And so for the three years while she was in Florida, her daughters got to go and see her three times, basically once a year. And that's devastating. That's devastating to children who are, who are you know, their mother is a phone. And then when you talk about the phone, you know, she got a maximum of 300 minutes a month, max. And each 15-minute phone call would cost like 7 or $8. Like that's, that's insane to me. Like yeah. you and I can sit here and, and talk to for 15 hours if we wanted to, and it's not going to cost us a dime. You know, it costs us whatever we're paying for our, you know, internet or whatever. But, you know, why are people allowed to profit off of this? You know, and, and why would the, the, the system who says that they really want to reduce um, the amount of people going back to prison, who really want to create these ties and understand that the biggest asset to anybody coming home from prison is connection, is family, is hope, is connection to community. From the second my sister went away, I felt every step of the way was set up to damage that connection and sever it. And it makes zero sense to me. Right, right. And I'm going to take a, take a brief pause for folks who are listening who maybe haven't seen the film. Uh, the stuff we're going to talk about next is, is, you know, may spoil the end of the film for people. So if you're listening and you, and you haven't watched it and you go watch it and come back and pick up right here and, and listen to Rudy and I talk about uh, what happens uh, at the end uh, of this movie. 
and what happens, uh, Rudy, is that your sister gets out, and um, and it is you know it makes for a really beautiful ending to this to this film, and and to see her you know get reunited with her family. Uh, but I want you to talk a little bit about about that and how little sense that makes. You've said you know it doesn't make any sense a lot of times in a lot of your answers, and and this uh, I want you to speak a little bit about you know how that worked for Cindy and and how few people benefited uh, from. Uh, from this uh, this act by the Obama administration, um, t- you talk a little bit about it in the film, but talk to us about that now. Yeah, again, like it make none of it makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people people have asked me um, many times. You know, especially after Cindy co- coming home and the film coming out, I've, I've received so many emails and messages and, and tweets and all this stuff of people saying, "How did you do it?" you know, what did you do? And, um, I don't know. I don't know what set Cindy's, um, case apart from the thousands of other people who I I feel are just as deserving as her. Um, it's, it's not a transparent system. This, uh, this clemency system and, and pardon system that, that we have set up. Um, you know, fortunately the Obama administration set up the clemency 2014 program that, that created more of a pipeline and more of a, a, uh, direction for people who were seeking clemency and we went to that but to be honest with you you know Cindy's clemency again was something that you know if, if you haven't picked up on it yet I play the long game and everything that I do and um, as soon as my sister went away like it's literally I'm thinking years ahead on so many things that I'm working on all of the time and when Cindy went away and I was trying to figure out you know what does an appeal mean what what does a what is a part like I, I I'm literally I should have probably bought you know the system for dummies um, <laughs> if it was out there I probably would have but I realized very quickly you know you get three appeals you know two where you can have somebody um, a court appointed attorney represent and third one you have to um, retain somebody and then I knew down the line many many years down the line eight or nine years down the road we were going to have this opportunity to petition for presidential clemency and. I didn't know what that meant and I didn't know what that was going to do. But what I didn't, what I did was I took, you know, rule one out of the political handbook and I decided to use name recognition. And I live in New York city and I was living in New York city throughout this entire time. And so, uh, Washington DC is a three and a half, four hour drive from here. And every time I heard there was going to be a hearing or a rally or a protest or something surrounding sentence reform or criminal justice reform, I would go there and I would talk to anybody who would listen to me and I would say her full name, Cindy Shank, and I'd tell her story and I would never use she or her or they. I would say Cindy Shank, Cindy Shank, Cindy Shank in the hopes that years down the road, somebody would be sitting there having these petitions go across their desk and at the very least, they would recognize her name and if they recognized her name, they would open up her petition and read it and I knew at that point because of who I knew my sister was, what happened in her case, and who she was going to be throughout her incarceration, that she would have a chance. And, and you know, again, I don't know if it worked. I don't know if that's what it was. But, um, yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah. So how long of that sentence, of that 15-year sentence, did she end up serving? She ended up doing nine and a half years altogether. Wow. Uh, and when did she get out? She got out. Um, technically, I picked her up from the prison on December 21st of 2016. 
Um, and then she was under home confinement, I think, for two months after that or a month or two after that. Yeah. And, and currently she's at, her parole has, has ended and, and she's completely free, correct? No, she is still under supervision. Oh. She's under probation. She got five years supervised release, I believe. So she still, you know, has to check in with the probation officer, has to, you know, let them know anytime she's traveling and anytime she's doing anything. So, you know, it's obviously much better, but she, um, you know, she still has to check in and she still has that sort of looking over her shoulder. And, all the time. and the system grinds on even when they don't have you. Uh, incarcerated, the system grinds on. Um, we're, we're running out of time, Rudy. I could talk to you about this stuff forever. Um, this is incredible work that you've done, uh, and I know you'll do more incredible work uh, in the future. So thanks for spending this much time. I, I, I can't go without talking about these three little girls, though, and, and I guess not so little anymore. So maybe is there something that you had to leave on the cutting room floor or something that uh, has happened since then uh, involving those precious little girls that you, you could share with us? I mean... Um, I don't think there's anything that I left on the cutting room floor that 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 I wished w- were in the film. I think there were certainly things that I didn't film that I wish I could have portrayed a little bit better. Um, you know, but especially with this film because it was my family, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just telling stories about what had happened. I wanted to show you, but um, I can tell you one quick story that is really emblematic of of, of why I fought and why I. Uh, you know, fought for Cindy to come home and why I fought to have this film finished and, and released. Um, we were on one of these trips to see Cindy in Florida. And I remember uh, we did it over spring break and we get on the um, plane and the flight attendant comes down the aisle and she sees, you know, there are a lot of kids on the plane and she looks at my my nieces and, and my mom was with us and she says, are you going to Disney World? Because we're going to Florida. And the girl sort of looked at me and I was like, no, we're not going to Disney World. And it completely broke my heart because they should have been going to Disney World. Wow. You know, they should have been doing something like that with their mom. They were living a parallel life. They were living something that they shouldn't have had to have gone through. And, and, and those were moments that just completely shattered me because through no fault of their own, through a system that is taking advantage of people, they – don't get to go to Disney World on this trip. They're going to sit in a prison for a couple of days, right? You know, and see their mom for the first time in a year, you know. And and I wasn't filming then because at the time they were, at that time they were a little more strict on when you could have you know electronics out and, and stuff like that on planes. But um, you know that was that was just one thing that really um, shattered me throughout. And to just talk very briefly about the girls, you know, people always ask, you know, how are they doing? Like, how are they going through all this? And, you know, you see it in the film. These girls are amazing. They're truly, truly amazing girls. And they've handled this entire process with such grace and poise and and intellect. And, um, you know, the the way they reflect on on the time and and the way they've really been forced to grow up a a little faster than maybe they should have. And I, I will say that right now they're doing wonderful. They're spending a ton of time with their mom. They have a wonderful dad. They're surrounded by love. But I always say all of that with a little asterisk next to it because we truly don't know what this has done to them yet. I think the ramifications of this sentence, not only for them but also for Cindy, it, it, it's we're not going to know for five or ten years. 
you know, as the girls enter into adulthood and enter into systems, the education system, the healthcare system, the job market, all of these things, we don't know how they're going, how this time has, has truly damaged them, if it has, and how they're going to be able to handle these things in the future. So, you know, we're, we're very cognizant of it and, and we talk to them about it all the time. Um, and, and we're going to be there to be supportive, but these, these ramifications are long lasting. The effects are long lasting. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, uh, and sharing about them. And, and again, for this, uh, beautiful film, for this powerful film, um, it, it was truly a privilege to talk to you about it. And, um, you know, again, thank you for making it, uh, and, and my best to you and your family for, uh, for sacrificing like you did to get it done. And, uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. That was Rudy Valdez in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Rudy and especially his family for the time they spent on this film. And thanks to Rudy for joining us today to answer a few questions. You can watch The Sentence now on HBO. I strongly encourage it and have some tissue handy when you do. Special thanks to Katie Raines, Just City's development manager, for helping produce this episode. And as always, thanks to Carla and Gil Worth at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their podcasts at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett, of course, wrote and performs She Got Gone, the original theme music for The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Subscribe to The Permanent Record somewhere. We're even on Spotify now. It's pretty easy to listen there. Follow us there. Leave us a rating. In a just city, we listen, we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. Hey, this is Josh again. The holidays haven't slowed us down much at Just City. We just finished our first ever court watch training. We're really excited about that program. You'll learn more about it next year. We also just bailed out a young mother so she can be home with her family and her child for the holidays. The work never stops here and the need for support never goes away either. So as you're considering who to give to and who to support near the end of the year, please consider Just City. We've accomplished a lot in the first three years as an organization. We've got so much more to do. Visit us at justcity.org give to learn about the ways that you can support us. We're doing really hard, difficult work, and we can't do it without help from folks like you. We hope you'll support Just City in your year-end giving. Thanks. Happy holidays. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.